from his beginnings as a wine steward at Chez Panisse, or working at Frank Gehry's architecture studio, or becoming associate partner at IDEO, and now design partner at NEA, the nation's largest venture capital firm, Albert Lee always strives to work with the best of the best. Given the breadth of his experience at these top institutions, it's probably not a surprise that even though his expertise is in design, he values the balanced approach between design, engineering, and product teams that are the hallmark of a product-driven company. In this episode, Albert helps us explore subjects like why the VC world has become more cognizant of design's impact, how organizational design influences product design, and how to kickstart a design transformation. We hope you'll get as much as we did from the insights Albert has to share. Thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Albert Lee, design partner at uh, New Enterprise Associates, one of the largest VCs on the planet and executive coach at Reboot. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Design Better podcast. Really excited to be here with you guys. We have a lot of questions for you because your career is, uh, is pretty fascinating. Um, you've had your hands in a lot of different things. Uh, from managing the New York office at IDEO and uh, certainly a lot of interesting things that have happened there, um, running your own startups, uh, uh, exploring you know the, the process of building companies on your own. And uh, today, you're, you're, uh, these days, you're spending a lot of time guiding companies. So um, lots of different things to, to explore. But uh, before we do, I, we've got to point out you're, you're kind of an incredible uh scholar and gentleman as a, a former wine steward at uh, Chez Panisse. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, that's, that's pretty incredible. And you were a designer at uh, Gary Part, uh, Partners, Frank Gary's uh, architecture practice. Can we talk about that first? Yeah, those are all true things. And you guys are, you guys are definitely making me blush, which you can't see. Um, yeah. So, you know, I actually put, I keep that initial job on the resume because it's one of the most interesting conversations that I have with people. So whether it's a job interview or like, you know, a new person that I'm meeting, meeting, they always ask about that, the Chez Panisse role. And in a lot of ways for me, actually, that first Chez Panisse job was probably my first foray into um, designing experiences. That's actually how I think about it. And so that's why, that's why I keep that on there. Uh, and 
And then on, you know, on the, on the Frank Gehry side, um, it was my first true job out of school. Uh, and the reason why I chose that job is I was definitely interested in the formal aspects of what, what Frank was doing, but I was more interested in how you, how you can convince people to build buildings like that. This was just after Bo Bao, and <clears throat> it was just incredible that he could get people to sign off on these multi-million dollar projects essentially building really large sculptures as architecture. And so I was, I was really curious about that. And that's why I ended up there for a little bit. Both really interesting perspectives on design and experience. And I love that you describe your time at Chez Panisse as designing an experience. Can, can you talk a little bit more about how, how is uh, the, the wine experience at Chez Panisse uh, related to user experience? Yeah. So, you know, actually it's both the wine experience, I'd say, and the overall choreography of that restaurant. So, you know, I, I took that job because I heard that you could get a staff meal before and after, and it seemed, it seemed way better than going to work in an architect's office for a summer. And so I went and what I was really surprised by the job was essentially, Hey, managing the seller, ensuring that um, everything was stocked and running wine on the floor, you know, in the evenings. And, uh, you know, I spent, I think I worked there for almost five-ish years, on and off in the floor, different roles, you know, wine boy, bartender, busboy, server. And the thing that quickly dawned on me was that um, this whole thing was, uh, was, curated before curation was even cool and um it was thought of as an end-to-end experience so the moment that you walk up to the restaurant to the way the lighting works to uh, the first display of you know fruit that's seasonal to how they greet you all the way to you know walking by the open kitchen to how your meal ends all of that was thought through every little detail the way that you would actually take uh you know uh, the 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 piece of paper that just sits on top of the tablecloth, all that whole thing um, was, was deliberately uh, designed. And I just kind of fell in love with that entire aspect of working in a restaurant. Every night you would just, you know, you would see this elaborate display of, um, of not just uh, like craft, but also showmanship, uh, both within the kitchen and the floor. And I think that, that, you know, in many ways has a, parallel to the way that we think about user experience and products, right? Because they're, you know, they're in an ideal world, a digital product has a certain type of uh, end-to-end choreography to it and some romance on a really good day, right? So from first touch to onboarding to even a conversion moment to how you make that that user feel, um, that should feel just like uh, um you know, an experience at Chez Panisse. But it's not just about the meal. It's about all the things that happened before and after that really make something stand out. And uh, yeah, thanks for letting me talk about that. I hadn't thought about that in a while. Well, this is an interesting metaphor for just design in general. And uh, we've observed that a lot of designers today in the software world uh, are very focused on their own medium and maybe uh, rarely look back at the other mediums uh, before them that have thought about design experience and uh, have figured out a a deeper way to explore that. And architecture and uh, the culinary arts are particularly interesting. You know, when I think about software design, 
we, we're very focused on shipping code and that's a big part of our process. So we want to make things functional. We want to make things reliable. Uh, we want to make things usable. And that's a, that's a bar that we've been shooting for for a very long, uh, long time. But, uh, you know, a, a designer shooting for usable is a bit like a chef shooting for edible. Um, it just, that's not the, that's not the Chez Panisse experience. It's, it's transcendent and it's a very special experience. It's hard to achieve that. That's greatness is, is really hard to come by. Uh, but it's an interesting lever for designers that uh, if we can create these really emotionally engaging experiences, uh, we, we can have higher profit margins. We could, you know, um, charge a higher price. And clearly, you know, Frank Gehry and, and the architecture that he's doing, um, there's something similar that's happening there that this is, it's not your typical modular home, right? It's something transcendent. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting. What that makes me think of is, um, you know, in both the example of the Chez Panisse or a really amazing restaurant, like, you know, uh, Love Madison Park or anything Danny Meyer would do and also architecture broadly and maybe Frank's buildings is, um, there's, there's definitely a narrative element to it. Uh, and it just makes me think about the phrase user journey. And it's hackneyed. We talk about all the time. It's like, oh, if you mapped out the user journey. But I, I really do think that that journey narrative notion of how you guide, shepherd, um, and cultivate uh, a user through an experience is, is often not talked about enough. And, um, you know, interestingly, some of the very best interaction designers that I know <clears throat> come from, uh, they come from motion graphics backgrounds because they just think in time. And uh, I think be, having the ability to think in time across a whole set of touch points um, is, is what makes those truly uh, delightful moments across an entire journey. So thanks for pointing that out. I hadn't thought about that. Albert, I was, I was curious about a, a few other things um, about your time with Frank Geary. First, what you mentioned about you know, how do you get a building built? That's basically a huge sculpture. <laughs> and what does it take to do that? And I'm curious what you learned there because a lot of the design leaders we're talking to, it feels like a big part of their role is managing those kind of relationships that they need to have to, you know, get products built, get well-designed products built. So I'm curious what you learned there. Yeah. And then also um, as a second question, kind of diverging from that a little bit, uh, he, he had, Frank Gary has this quote, that we like a lot. That's that's. Uh, he says, "If I knew where I was going, I wouldn't go there." And so I'm curious about how you know the kind of creative process at Gary and how many ideas get explored. Yeah. So maybe um, maybe to talk a bit about that that first question around you know what did I learn about positioning or, or selling projects. I mean, full acknowledgement, guys, I was, you know, I was an entry level architect model maker. <laughs> and, and maybe I'll answer the second question first, because that's sort of an easier way into the, the studio is the probably one of the largest lessons I learned at that office was that you just don't stop until you get it right. And what that meant is that constant, constant, endless cycles of iteration um, through multiple permutations, just to ensure that you've seen every possibility of the decision tree. And what's funny is that the decision tree is, you know, it's somewhat subjective. It's like, is that curve exactly right? Well, we, 
maybe. <laughs> and so um, uh, there was just a, a relentless drive to see uh, uh, to see whether or not there was another level of fidelity um, that you needed to go to in order to ensure that yes, that was that was absolutely the right call. And a lot of that was you know jumping scales from working on really 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 small models to life-size models and at every step of the way double clicking on whether or not um you know everyone felt good about that next jump in scale um into true life scale and i think that was that was one of the takeaways that i that has stayed with me is like you just you know in the same way that frank's talking about like yeah if it's if i don't if if i know where i'm going like that's not interesting it's underneath that is also just a relentless drive to kind of see what might be possible and what might be out there. The other question around how you can convince people to build things like that. Um, you know, I'd say there's maybe two things there. I think the first is, um, and this is a little bit overlooked is that there's an entire, again, kind of a choreography to the whole studio experience. So when you walk into Frank's uh, architecture studio, it's not like a, it's not an office. It's a it is a workshop. It is an atelier. Things are getting made all the time, at multiple scales. And I think there's something about bringing people into the process and the the sort of um, the romance of it, the majesty of it, the making of it uh, that uh, designers often forget. Uh, you know, we get stuck in uh, presentation mode or showing only finished product. Uh, and there was something about when folks would come to the to, to Frank's office, you're just you're sort of blown away. Um, and that's when I realized, at least for me, the importance of actually um, opening the kimono and letting everyone in on what's going on. And so it wasn't just about hey. I'm a super talented designer. I'm going to mock up the most amazing thing you've ever seen. I'm going to present it to you. And you're going to say that it's awesome too. It was actually more about like, hey, this is a whole journey that we're going on. We're going to actually go on this journey together and, um, you know, hold on to your horses. And so I think there was, that was a, a big part of, of what I thought was really neat to see. I think the other thing that was... Um, What's really interesting, at least for me, is that uh, the the studio was really good at taking. You look at a Frank building, and you're like, "That looks crazy," or "That how does that even work?" And what I found uh, neat and re really reassuring is that many of the details uh, are worked out before you get to some of what might be considered the more sculptural or crazy things. And so uh, the building is designed within a site. The site is like completely considered. So context is taken into account. And then the program, basically how the building needs to function, is all taken into account and modeled out before you actually even get to the formal aspects of it. And it's, you know, this constant dialogue. But it wasn't just like, hey, we're going to crumple up some paper and like turn it into a building. There was a lot of legwork that went into um, uh the function of the building. And I think, uh, they, they also were really good at that process of bringing clients along is that, Hey, you're going to get a, a marquee building and it will, it will completely change your brand as a, as a cultural institution or as a, as a corporation or what have you. But 
um, you know, this is this is there's some real engineering feats uh, that need to go uh, into the the infrastructure of what we're building together. Um, I was I'm wondering if you could contrast that that sort of um, that process and that timeline for getting a large structure built where there's a lot of engineering in the front end, and then it's only a little bit later on that some of these maybe more creative elements are brought in with with the design of a software product. If you could you could contrast those two a bit yeah you know i the way that i often describe product design really good product design sort of sits at the intersection of uh, like any good design talk it involves a venn diagram and it sits at the intersection of uh business needs essentially how do we make money uh to engineering how do we actually get the thing built in three design, which is really the voice of the user and ensuring that we're serving the needs of the user in the right way. And I think really great product design and designers actually sit at the intersection of all three of those things. And often what I would observe is that design doesn't get looped into the conversation until too late. So, you know, in an ideal world, uh, design would be there fairly early on. And the perception sometimes is, is that design is either one really expensive, um, uh, takes too long or, you know, um, is really, really pricey in, in any, in any product cycle or two, um, uh, it's actually just about, you know, uh, the finishing touches and, uh, ensuring that the pixels and color are right at the end of a process. And so, uh, if, if, if I were to backtrack that and, and think about the parallel structure of, you know, building a building, um, ideally what you have is you have all the, uh, in the way that you think about program in a building, which is basically how does it function? What are the requirements? And you think about the budget, uh, and you also think about, um, what's possible and what's available from an engineering standpoint. Um, the same should be true in a digital product design process. Uh, and, and, but design should be in the mix, uh, if not potentially leading, helping to lead that conversation from the get go. Uh, things go wrong when, uh, you, we are only thinking about, um, key metrics, uh, w- within a business case or only thinking about the limitations or possibilities within, with an engineering lens. Um, and bringing in uh, the designers at the very end of a process once most of those things are already baked. Uh, the assertion is, and we've seen this time and time again, is that bringing design in earlier into that conversation when feature requirements are being talked about, when you are actually trying to understand where in the queue it'll be in engineering, um, that you know designers with those constraints can uh, actually shorten product cycles and probably come up with even more innovative solutions than if they were brought in um, toward the end of a process. Albert, when you were talking about uh, the, the the studio at Gary Partners, you describe it as a workshop, that there's a lot going on. And we've, we've seen pictures, haven't visited, but seen pictures and there are models everywhere, sketches. Uh, clearly there's a lot of ground that's being covered and explored. And you described, uh, you know, the the majesty of that, that there's an opportunity here for designers to um, to bring people into that process that is mysterious and magical to a certain degree. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about, uh, as, as you reflect on your time, uh, in the, the world of architecture and your time visiting a lot of different companies and advising, um, executives, uh, ab about design and how it works best, uh, how, how should it work? How should designers, design leaders be thinking about bringing more people into that process uh, to maybe de demystify to a certain degree uh, to, to get more people involved so they can be part of the process early on and uh, part of the strategy? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple, a handful of things to actually maybe talk about there. <clears throat> so in the, in the, the reason why that workshop feels the way that it does is that it's tangible. And there's just something about when you make things um, and you can see them, but you can touch them, that reactions become really different. And this is this was true of my experience at IDEO as well, is, um, you know, that's a heavy prototyping culture. And uh, rather than us looking around the room being like, I think it should be like this, or she thinks it should be like that, and he says that you actually look at the thing that's prototyped uh, and then you refer to the user, which is probably none of us in the room. And um, that essentially refocuses the conversation. So <clears throat> it's hard in uh, if you're designing just a software product uh, to in introduce tangibility into, um, uh, into the process. However, that is not to say... Um, you know, you can't actually, and, and it's surprising that you don't see this often enough is it isn't that hard to go get a bunch of four by eight gator board and start pinning things up everywhere all the time. And what I've seen happen in, um, startup cultures in particular, where they do embrace some level of tangibility is that it sparks a hallway conversation or people will actually see progress and momentum in a different way. Um, and you know, making things real, marking them up, um, and having them in the space, uh, really brings a product to life, uh, and the process to life. Uh, I'll, you know, and this is a plug for you guys is I think the tool that you all have built at Envision has essentially allowed for a far more democratic, um, and visible, uh, set of conversations to happen around making design decisions because you've essentially created a place where everyone can show up pretty much at any time. And there is no, um, you know, if I'm a stakeholder in marketing or I'm, you know, even the CFO, I can kind of get a sense of what's going on and how to actually use the product. Um, and that is a certain kind of tangibility. Uh, so I think, you know, I think that's one thing is, you know, how do you, how do you make it tangible? I think the second is um, how do you prototype early and often? So, you know, I, I, this is not true. I'm making broad sweeping generalizations here, but I, I do think that we're, we're off, you know, a lot of designers still often think it's like, Hey, I came up with a solution. This is the right one. I'm just going to defend it. When in fact, actually, we all know that there are multiple paths to figure out a solution. And so having the skills to prototype that, um, that, that set of possibilities, uh, early, quickly, um, can really change the conversation. And, uh, again, you know, it's, it's just a digital prototype is, I, I think, just as effective as a physical prototype. I think the third thing, which <clears throat> doesn't, um, I think is also an opportunity is, you know, to help people understand how design decisions get made. And so I've seen this in a handful of teams where they'll actually have design crits, um, reviews, 
but they'll they'll invite in cross-functional stakeholders just to kind of understand um, what the the language is and what the decision-making criteria are. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of having an open door policy to, um, you know, how a design team operates, I think can demystify the whole thing. It isn't, it, you know, it, it, it of course depends on the design culture, but language I think can really help build bridges as well. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T-DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes and they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash design better. 
you mentioned IDEO and the prototyping culture there. What were, what were some of the other things that you learned during your, your tenure at IDEO? Oh my gosh. <laughs> what didn't I learn there? Um, you know, I'll just start to maybe share a handful of lessons. Uh, some I think are specifically about design. I think others are about how to nurture um, a culture and a creative culture at that. Um, so maybe just on the pure design side, uh, you know, I come from, I came from Frank Gehry, you know, I worked at a design firm called two by four, which did a lot of, you know, great graphic interaction brand work, a lot with architects. And it, it was always within, you know, these cultures of, of, um, of creativity and genius in a way, which I have a lot of respect for. And I still think is, is really valid. When I got to IDEO, I realized that this was not about any one person's genius or creative capability. And, uh, there's two things there. One is that it, we, you know, it was always about the user. It was always trying to understand the emotionally resonant needs of who you're building or designing something for. And then two is that, and I'd sort of gotten this uh, coming up the ranks at two by four is that there is, it, it is always better with more minds um, and more uh, disciplines and more skill sets looking at a problem to arrive at a solution than just yourself. Uh, and so just the, the whole myth of the auteur just was completely blown up. Uh, I'd had an inkling of it, but, you know, I didn't really helped me see that in action. Um, you know, I think the, the, the second piece is really just around human centered design. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people call that, but you know, the history of IDEO is it's old school. So when people talk about, um, uh, user prototyping or sprint mindset or lean startup, even from a handful of years ago, that, that actually all comes back to prototyping early and often and being wrong as quickly as you possibly can. Um, and that was, there was a real freedom in that, um, a little bit different. It, it was sort of there, there was like that melded with the, the Gary thing that I picked up, which was just like, just do thousands of permutations on something, um, was a sort of a really freeing, uh, freeing mode, uh, for, for me to embrace. Um, and then maybe just a, a cultural piece, uh, there's more there on the design side, but on the, on the cultural piece, I would say that, um, having truly interdisciplinary teams and helping people have the tools through a set of values, uh, that allow for a, uh, interaction designer who, um, cares about things being pixel perfect, sitting next to a business designer who is cared, cares a lot about ensuring that there's a really robust revenue model, having the magic between those, like those two disciplines come together, um, is, you know, that's, that's, that's where the real value lies. And, and I, I, I see this in startups as well is the strongest teams are the ones that can operate cross-functionally fluidly. Um, and so that was, you know, that was, uh, something that I saw in practice and it's, it's baked into the DNA of that company of IDEO, uh, to be able to 
to bridge disciplines and nurture the right kind of conversation and collaboration. So there was a great article that you wrote on Medium about design and NDA. NDA. I think that's probably first found you actually. Um, and in one of the sections, you talk about how your customer's experience has nothing to do with your org chart, which I think is great. But also, is there is there an opportunity for organizational design to influence product design and the, and the quality of the work? I, yeah. I mean, I think a hundred percent, I think it, it, uh, it comes back to the first things that we talked about is if you think about the user journey, uh, typically what you have for any company is there's top of funnel then there's a, there's the bottom of the funnel, there's a conversion moment and then there's retention and engagement. And, Essentially, how do we ensure that we're providing value to this customer in the right way over time? And uh, what a company will often do is cut that up based on silo. So marketing is top of funnel. Um, you know, maybe growth is dealing with the conversion moment. And uh, maybe the product team is dealing with some of the retention and engagement stuff. But that's also not clear. Um, if you were to look at that from a from an organizational design lens, um, you know some of the companies that I see be most successful actually will set objectives and goals that are that have a single product owner have a single owner, but actually have cross functional teams. Um, and so, rather than saying marketing is just going to own top of funnel, uh, there's a realization that marketing, you know, will also need to engage itself with design and engineering. And also probably part of the product team in order to ensure that those initiatives that they're launching and that a user sees um, thread all the way through um, to the other side of a customer's onboarding moment. Um, and, and, and so th- in terms of how you think about um, accountability uh, within an organizational design structure, there's certainly functional um, and discipline capability and accountability but there's um, maybe more, more interestingly is essentially how you drive um, a, a product or a company toward three objectives that are purely cross-functional. Sounds really stupid and simple, but kind of hard to do in practice. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's one thing. And, I, and then I think there's also process stuff around, um, you know, who... This is a this is a perennial question, right? For for design is where does design sit? Does design sit in engineering? Design sit underneath product? Design have an equal seat at the table as product and engineering? Um, and you know what? I, I've come to believe that it's it's really dependent on the organization, the people in the room, as well as stage of growth. Um, and you know, pretty much default to design having an equal seat and a voice at the table to product and engineering. But it really, again, it depends on the people that are in the room. Um, but ensuring that uh, the the design team is integrated into the shaping of a brief and the asking of a question, even if it's a, a business um, centric question, say coming out of product, is is really critical. And so. It's both org design, but also process design. Cool. You just uh, preemptively answered a, a question I was about to, to ask there. <laughs> uh, you recently conducted a pretty interesting survey at NEA uh, with um, a lot of startups asking questions about how design operates 
trying to find some common patterns across a lot of different organizations. What did you learn from that? Um, you know, this was, was really fun for us. Uh, we, we felt at NEA, um, that we understand that design is extremely valuable we understand that it creates long lasting value. And, you know, we have many like-minded founders and entrepreneurs in our portfolio. Um, but no one had actually taken the step to try and measure some of, of what's really happening out in various companies. And so, you know, this was an open call. Uh, this wasn't just NEA companies. And uh, we, we essentially got 400 um, startups sharing their, their information, filling out uh, a battery of questions that we asked them, 300 of which were venture-backed. And one of the neat things that we found was, you know, it was reassuring that a large majority of companies believe that design is important. Most actually have founders or C-levels weigh in on design decisions. So this isn't just something that's relegated to a sideshow, that it's integral to how a company is getting built. But more interestingly, we found that if you, if you double click on the 300 venture-backed companies, there were a, a number of different cohorts within that. So just assume that all 300 who signed, who, you know, signed up to answer the survey were design centric in some capacity. There were a number of companies who we would call committed. They thought that design was super important to their business. They have a, a designer co-founder or they'd built at least a team of five. Um, if you double click on that cohort, there was a mature cohort, which was committed companies that had more than 20 million in funding or at least 20 designers on staff, which is, that's a lot. And then if you double click on that, we found that, uh, you know, in this group, there were eight unicorns. And so these were companies, you know, say what you will about that phrase, um, but these were mature companies with valuations in excess of a billion. And what was, so, you know, that's, it was, it was like a nice representative sample. And what we loved seeing was that Across all key questions, the more mature companies, meaning the further you got down that funnel of companies that invested in design, they actually had a greater belief in the impact of design. So what that, you know, does design lead to higher sales? Does design lead to higher customer retention? Does design lead to higher customer engagement? Does it actually help you with faster product cycles? And if you just track the answers going from the large cohort all the way down to the unicorns, they all pretty much increase in their belief of design the more successful and the larger they get. And that to us was like, huh, this is, this is, not, just, um, this is not just window dressing for design being uh, helpful in creating um, a, a really resonant product. This is actually really, really successful enterprises understanding the tremendous long-lasting value that having design be an integral part of their organization is key in, in creating a valuable enterprise. Um, and then there's a whole host of things that come out of that, you know, in terms of, is it important to be cross-functional? Um, you know, how do you actually think about the ratio of designers to engineers? You know, how, how much hiring are you doing? Like all, those are all really, uh, you know, we're really, really, there are great insights for us to see, but the largest takeaway is that, um, the more successful the, a company was, at least in this cohort, the more they believed that design was um, an integral part of their of their secret sauce. Uh, yeah, this is fascinating. Just uh, the idea that design uh, is being recognized as this uh, 
this, this key uh, lever for success um, by larger companies. Uh, have you talked to um, folks about how they communicate the value of design? Because this is a common theme we hear a lot, even at companies where, you know, they, they've got a well-established design practice. Communicating that value of design uh, can be a challenge, even after there have been a few successes. What's the, what's the right way for designers to start thinking about how they deliver that message inside their organization? Many designers may not like this answer, um, but my belief is that one of the ways in which design can truly ensure uh, permission and uh, leverage within an organization is to tie design activities to um, measurable metrics. And so any, you know, I, I'm steeped in the world of high, high growth startups. And so for any high growth startup, there are usually only two or three key KPIs that they're measuring that allow them to understand if the business is trending in the right direction. And the job of um, a really successful design team is to take those metrics um, and in partnership and in collaboration uh, translate that into design projects and prioritization. And so, you know, a basic example of that would be, this is, you know, just plain vanilla is we have an e-commerce retail site. The only thing that matters is that credit card conversion moment post add to cart. And, uh, that's actually a design problem. It's both a product problem and a business problem. And there's a whole host of things that go into that. But that entire choreography of essentially me looking at a PDP, adding to cart, making the decision, that, that is, that's actually going to sit in both wireframes and that there's a ton of intelligence that will go into the visual design of that. Helping your cross-functional partners um, uh, essentially see the, and be able to measure some of that uh, is, is key. And then also... Um, having a clear conversation around, hey, also there, there's some moments where we're, we as a design team are probably going to take on some risk and you'd be surprised by what happens when we take on some risk. We're not going to do it all the time, um, but when we do, we'll have a deliberate conversation about what we're trying to prove and how we're going to measure that in order for us to all agree that that actually us taking on that risk was a really good idea. Um, so I think that's I think that's one piece is the the business metrics piece. Um, the second is uh, what I'll just broadly call principles, design principles, and this has to do with users. Is uh, I you know people are like why is why why does why why is design important? Well, actually, design if you look at a company is probably the closest to understanding the voice of the user or the needs of the user than anyone else. Again, it depends on the way in which the organization's cut. Sometimes there's product owners that are really empathic in that way, so on and so forth. But if you just think about the day in and the day out, they're actually the ones that are continually thinking about um, who the key stakeholders are in the customer base. And so being the keeper of not just the user personas, um, which are extremely helpful, but the set of principles that you derive from the needs of those user personas and having those principles actually be agreed upon by the organization broadly is, you know, essentially this is how uh, we do things for this particular user can help people continually understand the value of what design is doing. So I'll give you a real, another really dumb example is 
let's say that we have, um, you know, an insurance product, uh, and, uh, our, one of our key personas is a mom who's 32 who lives in, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, she actually is so busy. She's got three kids. She doesn't want to do math. <laughs> and so, um, you know, one strategy that we might take in supporting her would be to actually show her all the, the, the math and the fine print and all of that and walk her through a bunch of calculations, but actually she doesn't have time for that. And so we've learned this through user research, through prototyping, through V1 of the product launch, et cetera. But for her, you know, the design principle then you would lend ladder up is that, you know, we're here to support her in um, having faith in our calculations. Uh, I just, I kind of, I'm just making this up a little bit, but that, that essentially will guide so many decisions, right? It means that we're not going to bore her with a long list and litany of, you know, of calcs and math. We're going to help ensure that she feels trust that our math is sound, but we'll only show her what she needs to see when she needs to see it. Um, and those principles, like once they're articulated and, and bought in by an organization, hugely can be hugely beneficial for the cross-functional collaboration that we've been talking about, so on and so forth. I really like that that idea of principles. I think it's that's, that's pretty powerful. Um, shifting gears to hiring, um, in your Medium article, you had a section saying your first design hire is critical, but very different than your fifth and sixth. I wonder if you have any thoughts on kind of best practices that you're seeing around around hiring designers. And hiring is so hard, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think one thing that, that bears mentioning is that we live in an extremely tight market for really uh, amazing design talent. This is, a, this is an awesome time to be alive as a designer. Um, and if you're interested in, in rapidly growing companies, amazing digital products or hardware products for that matter, um, and disrupting industries, you know, with a single, with a single company or a single product, you're, you're in a really, really good spot. Um, yeah, I think that the, the things that teams, um, do that, that I've observed that they do really well is they don't just do the, um, you know, Hey, come in, this is the role. Let's look at your portfolio. Um, but they will actually carve out time to, and, and, you know, sending homework and having someone do an assignment is really important as well. And I've, you know, I've seen a lot of benefit from that, but actually carving out time to work on a problem with that potential hire. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to cut that cake, but, you don't really know what the collaboration style is like of an individual solving a problem together in the room in the moment, um, you know, is, is extremely critical and you'll get a better sense of what type of designer they are. I mean, let's be, let's be real is that, um, you don't know, like just because you're good in the moment and facilitating and collaborating and et cetera, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you know, the world's best designer. There's some designers who are really, really, they're just like, I'm a heads down person. Just, you know, let me sit and crank. And, um, I think surfacing, uh, you know, those behaviors and traits and needs on both sides can only really be done through, you know, one on, uh, 